In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. David, David, David. Not you, David. David, a man after God's own heart. A slayer of giants, of ten thousands. The gold standard of the kings of Israel. A man with whom God had made a covenant to fulfill the promises of Abraham, to fulfill the purposes of creation. A man through whom would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. A man held in high esteem throughout Scripture by both God and man. This man, David, is unrecognizable in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We just heard the story. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. He asks around about her, finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is important because she's not just the wife of some no-name Israelite. I mean, Uriah, as, as we heard in the lesson, is an honorable man. Moreover, he was one of David's mighty men. The mighty men were this elite group of warriors. And within that group, uh, Uriah was a part of what's known as the 30. So not quite at the top. There were three guys who were at the very top. So if you think it's the Olympics, think Dream Team. Three at the top would have been Jordan, Magic, and Bird. But Uriah is still an all-star among David's mighty men. That doesn't stop David. He sends for Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then, and this is where it gets, I think, really bad. He tries to cover it up. He sends for Uriah, who's on the front lines of the war, uh, under the pretext uh, that he wants to know how things are going. I mean, Literally anyone but one of your best fighters could have come home and told David how the war was going. He brings him home. Well, since you're here, Uriah, relax, take a load off, go see your wife. And so David, of course, is hoping that he'll go see his wife and sleep together, and he'll think the baby is his. But Uriah, being an honorable man, he sleeps the at the door of the king's house. I love this line. He says, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David says, okay, we're going to have to try again. So the next day, Gets some good Russian vodka, and he, he gets Uriah drunk. And he's like, surely if I, if I get him drunk, he'll, he'll go home and he'll sleep with his wife. But he still, even in his drunken state, retains his honor. David takes it to a whole nother level, as, as the kids say. He writes a letter to Joab, to the commander of his army, which says, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And here's where it gets really cold. 
David sends this letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah the Hittite. So he's carrying his own death warrant. Joab does what David says, and Uriah is killed. What happened with David? How did he fall so far, so fast? I believe the first verse of chapter 11 is key. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. David was in the wrong place. And being in the wrong place can and does lead to wrongdoing. Being in the wrong place, we're going to explore this this morning, physically, socially, and mentally leads to sin. Uh, There was a song... I grew up singing in Sunday school. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. My voice is shot. I'm not going to sing it this morning. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Who's ever heard that song? Who sung that as a little kid? I know Casey. We had basically the same upbringing. Also says, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because David wasn't where he was supposed to be, he put himself in a situation where it was difficult for him to maintain what is called the custody of the eyes. You see, being attentive to how we use our eyes is important because what we look at with our physical eyes affects what we will behold with the eye of the soul. Uh, looking at things that we're not supposed to, or, or even more than that, just being indiscriminate with our sight and therefore being indiscriminate with our attention can lead to the arousal of base and sinful desires. Or we can just miss out on what God has for us. When I, when I went to, because this can be a positive thing as well, custody of the eyes, when I started at Neshota House Theological Seminary, we have chapel every day. We have uh, mat, morning prayer and mass in the morning and then even song at night. And they teach us to find a spot in the chapel because we're sitting in the choir, so we're facing one another, the students. Find a place in the chapel. Pick one of the stained glass windows, you know, when your eyes aren't on the sacramental or liturgical action. And just stay fixed on it. Maintain custody of the eyes. Don't look around, you know, make contact with your peers. Why? Because we get distracted. We start thinking, you know, oh, yeah, there's my friend. Remember that joke he told me? Or or we're just looking around and we're thinking, man, I'm hungry. You know, or, or whatever it is. We get distracted and we miss out on what God has for us. We're no longer worshiping. What we look at affects what we think. And what we think affects who we are. What does Scripture say? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
when it comes to this idea of maintaining the custody of the eyes, we are, I think, as moderns uh, living in a post-industrial uh, revolution age, living in a technological age, I think we're in a very difficult situation because we not only have to contend with the real world, but we have to contend with virtual worlds as well. And I'm not being a Luddite, but I think we have to for various and sundry reasons, or I think we should. I don't think we're doing this yet, myself included, but I think that we should for the health of our bodies, and particularly our brains, and moreover for the health of our souls, both limit and meticulously curate, curate our use of tech. And again, I'm not good at this, but just so you know, one of the reasons, there are lots of reasons. One of the reasons we don't make use of screens during worship at All Souls is because I think we need a reprieve from the all-dominant screen. The capital sins, you probably know them as the seven deadly sins, are pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, sloth, and wrath, all of which one can easily be drawn towards if not maintaining custody of the eyes in the real world and in the virtual world. Let's talk about the virtual world because we, we live there too. And I'm not just talking about lust. Subtext of the sermon, uh, though it applies to this, is not just, hey, guys, don't look at pornography. It, it applies, but it's broader than that. I mean, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever been left feeling discontent or jealous after scrolling through Instagram or Facebook? Have you ever been filled with wrath on account of something uh, that was posted on one of these sites. Something to think about. So we don't want to be in the wrong place. Get back to David. We don't want to be in the wrong place, whether we're talking about latitude and longitude sort of place or IP address. We also can be, briefly, I want to talk about the wrong place socially. The people with whom we associate, the people that we spend our time with, the people that we share our lives with, because the people that we spend time with, have a profound effect on our lives. It sounds like we're as mad as youth pastor. I'm going back to my youth pastor day. You know, be careful who your friends are. But the truth is, whether you're 18 or you're 80, friends have a profound effect on your life. They say, and I think it's true, that you're the average of your five closest friends. Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So again, being in the wrong place physically, socially, mentally leads to sin, and the three are interrelated. But what of the latter? What, what of sins of, of the mind? I mean, we, we know, at least we should, we know that we can commit them. I mean, our, our Lord taught us that 
one who looks lustfully upon a woman has already committed adultery in her, uh, with her in his heart. But is having a sinful thought sin? I, for one, certainly hope not. Because if I'm held accountable for every sinful, wicked, crazy, insane thought that pops into my head, then I, I have no hope of glory. No. Having a sinful thought is not sin. We oftentimes can't control what pops into our heads. And oftentimes, that which enters our mind or is, is put in front of our senses is the suggestion of the enemy. The issue is not the thoughts that enter our minds, but what we do with them. A sinful thought becomes sin when there is a consent of the will to delight in it. Now, some form of delight is not itself sin because your lower nature, your sinful nature is going to be drawn to things that aren't good. That's what makes the temptation have an attraction, is it not? It's when we give ourselves over to that, when a thought which is a phantom devolves into fantasy. And with our will, directed by hopefully the Holy Spirit of God, we, we choose to continue in our minds and hearts down that road. It's it's when we allow ourselves to be taken captive by sinful thoughts instead of taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Jesus Christ. I think this is good news because some of us are, are scrupulous. We're harder on ourselves. And we're weighed down with guilt because we think and we feel these things that we know are not good. Brothers and sisters, stop beating yourself up on account of temptation. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, temptation doesn't decrease, it increases. on account stop beating yourself up on account of temptation instead draw near to God and draw on his power keeping the door closed and when you find yourself where you shouldn't be again racially speaking socially mentally believe do what Joseph did in Potiphar's house. Or if it's mental. Think on what is true and good and beautiful and noble. So David in 2 Samuel 11, he shows us what not to do when it comes to temptation and sin. And I think a reflection upon the fall of David and in light of how 
God himself in scripture speaks of, of David after his fall, it should fill us with both humility and hope. It should humble us because if David, a man after God's own heart, is capable of such grievous sin, then so are we. And it's only on account of God's mercy that we are able to walk on the narrow road which leads to life. It has to be this humility of, Lord, every hour I need you. I'll tell you in my life, anytime any sort of self-righteousness creeps in, anytime I kind of sit back and say, man, I'm doing really well with this. Within 24 hours, come stumbling, come falling down. There's humility. And I think also that David gives us hope, which is what we're going to get at in the following weeks. He gives us hope of forgiveness, of redemption, of restoration after our failures. David's life. It's really hardly ever spoken of after the situation's dealt with. David's life is not defined by his failure. The books of Holy Scripture, which record the life of David, were written after David lived, after he committed adultery, after he murdered Uriah the Hittite. Moreover, Within the Old Testament narrative and up through, up to and through the New Testament, David is commended by Almighty God. He, he's, as I said in the beginning of my sermon, the gold standard by which all other kings of Israel are compared. It's, it's, it's always either it was like David or he wasn't. Just one example, 1 Kings 9.4, when the Lord is admonishing King Solomon, the son of David and the Lord says, and if thou wilt walk before me, he's speaking to Solomon, as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness. St. Uh, Ambrose of Milan, uh, who lived in the fourth century, was a mentor, if you will, of Augustine. He, he wrote a couple treatises that's really interesting. He wrote a couple treatises in defense of David because apparently there were not a few people in his day and age who thought David, because of what he did, they thought him to be unworthy of commendation and imitation. So Ambrose defends David, and I love some of the things that he says. First, he, he points out the self-righteousness of David's detractors. How many of you are without sin? Yes, David sinned once, and it was, it, was, it was a major sin. But how many of you sin hour by hour, day by day, month by month, year by year? Something that's always uh, struck me as funny. Uh, in, I have felt in the church sometimes, not so much in the Episcopal church, but throughout my church experience, that people can be... Um, extremely critical of the people in the Bible. I don't understand Israel. They're wandering in the wilderness and they're complaining and they don't trust God. Why don't they just trust God? 
well, why don't you just trust God? As, as, as if we're so much better. So Ambrose points out uh, the self-righteousness of those who would condemn David. And then he also comments that if God, if almighty God himself, commends David over and over and over again, describes him as someone with integrity and uprightness of heart, then who are we to condemn him? He also says that the sins of the saints are for our good. For if the, if the saints were, if the people in the Bible, the patriarchs, the prophets, saints down through Christian history, if they were perfect, it would be really difficult. We would lack motivation to imitate them because we can't relate to perfect people because we're not perfect. We just think, well, they must be superhuman. They have something that I don't have. They must be a different kind of creature. St. Augustine, who was a disciple of Ambrose, perhaps picks up on this idea when he says, every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. I think David's life holds out for us great hope. Great hope for you today. You think about your life. Maybe you think about things you've done. Maybe you're weighed down by sins for which you've been forgiven. David reminds us that no matter what our sin, in thought, in word, or deed, that God offers to us, through his son Jesus Christ, forgiveness and redemption and a road to healing and restoration. So brothers and sisters, let us today, again, learn from David in this particular instance what not to do when it comes to sin and temptation. And let us not imitate David in his sin but allow his sin to point us to Christ in whom we find forgiveness. And let us take heart that no matter what muck and mire we find ourselves in, that God's grace will meet us there. And that if we turn to him, we're going to see David do this next week. If we turn to him Repentance and surrender, the Lord Jesus Christ will once again set our feet upon the rock. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.